Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Amanda White. I'm editor of Top 1000 Funds, and this is the Fiduciary Investors Series podcast. So it's my pleasure today to be speaking with Marcy Frost, who's the Chief Executive of Cowpers. Welcome, Marcy. Lovely for, for you to be here with us. Yes, thank you, Amanda. It's really nice to, to get to see you again. So let's begin with, I think, probably the biggest thing on the uh, agenda for CalPERS right now, which is uh, the CIO search. Uh, you just recently called off that um, recruitment process or that search or, or delayed it at least. What, can you talk us through why that's taking so long? Is it because of the pandemic? Are there other uh, external impacts and forces at play? Are you not being able to write, find the right candidates? Just tell us where you're up to on that. Thank you. I, I do believe that there are really a combination of factors. Uh, the first factor, of course, is the pandemic. And we did hear from a number of candidates who we had done some very proactive outreach to early. And it was just a difficult time for them to think about moving if they were out of uh, the U.S., you know, moving into the U.S. and trying to get across the border with their families during a pandemic. And, you know, people were just settled in. Everyone was staying at home under stay-at-home orders in some cases, uh, but just not a, you know, a good time to ask people to relocate. In addition, uh, there were some decisions yet to be made about the compensation for the chief investment officer at CalPERS, and one of those is related to the long-term incentive. And the board had been looking at that. Uh, the CIO at CalPERS uh, is uh, currently excluded from the long-term incentive. Yet one of the biggest challenges we have at CalPERS is the retention of uh, that position. And so this long-term incentive is intended to really help to get people to think five years out, being eligible to receive you know, an LTIP. Uh, so the board will be making that decision uh, next week about whether to include uh, the long-term incentive for the chief investment officer position. They will be taking guidance from their new uh, compensation consultant who came on at the end of December, and uh, they will be just giving a general update about incentive structures. And, you know. and then I think the third factor for us is that it's a very competitive environment uh, right now to recruit for this level of a position. Many of the funds are recruiting for chief strategy officers or chief investment officers. And when we compare the compensation here in the United States to our peer public pension plans, the compensation is strong, right? So it's in top decile uh, in terms of comp. Uh, when we compare ourselves to, uh, for example, some of the Canadian funds, if we're trying to go after the number one or number two in, the, in those funds, our compensation is really not that uh, competitive there. We do believe that the long-term incentive uh, plan will help, but you know those three factors and then you know, there, there is just some, you know, caution when we talk to candidates uh, and a lot of questions about working in our very public, often characterized as political environment that is the chief investment officer able to focus on the portfolio and the people in the investment office, or is the chief investment officer more externally focused? And most of the candidates that uh, we were talking with were really in that former. They, they are you know, working on the portfolio, they're talented investors, they want to work with a talented team, and really wanted to have some commitment that we could restructure a bit to keep the CIO focused uh, there and not so much focused externally around, for example, stakeholders or 
uh, talking about performance, talking about the portfolio. These are more the, the people who wanted to execute on the strategy. Yeah, it's a really very particular skill set you're looking for, isn't it, in the candidate? Because as you mentioned, probably more than any fund in the world, really that that public aspect to it, the transparency around what you do. So I can imagine that is a, a complication. It's interesting you're talking about sort of changing the, potentially changing the, the REM structure. And it seems like there's been a couple of lessons, I guess, from from Ben leaving, um, I know now the board's involved in that process of selecting a CIO, whereas in the past it was just the CEO function. You're looking at potentially having that CIO transfer their personal investment holdings into a blind trust. So there's, you know, the, I guess maybe the silver lining in it all is that you are improving your processes and and looking at things, you know, using it as a pause to kind of look at things differently. Can you comment on, you know, what that's been like internally? that process of review? I can. For a a number of years, the board was really uh, the one who had uh, hiring authority for the chief investment officer. And the CEO, uh, for the first time, hired the chief investment officer in in mid-May. But what the board was trying to do with the governance change is to put into place a process that I had been using since I had been there. So essentially any C-suite type of job, whether that was the chief financial officer, whether that was the chief investment officer, whether that was our actuary, I would involve the board members in those actual interviews so that they could give input about whether they could see this person working with them. And so, you know, for me, practically day to day, it really doesn't change the way I interact with the board about the shared responsibility for hiring because I've always seen it as a shared responsibility at these kind of C-suite positions because they are reporting to the board. They are uh, committee liaisons to the board for the various committees of risk and audit or performance and call for the investment committee. So um, good governance uh, is something we pay very close attention to. But I but I saw this as really not a governance change, that really putting into policy the practice that I was already doing with them. And, um, and then, you know, the shared responsibility in the performance evaluation. Again, I've always felt that that was something I shared with the board, uh, and as well as uh, sharing if we were able or ever uh, needing to terminate the, the chief investment officer. Obviously, I would be working with my board if that was a consideration. So that one I didn't, you know, really, I did not concern myself too much about uh, because, again, I essentially felt that that was just putting into practice what I was doing with them. And then, you know, on the holdings, we were we were clear with people as they were expressing interest. Uh, and, you know, the communication we were giving to candidates is that, you know, essentially you can't hold individual securities. Uh, we had not told them, you know, that, you know, down the road, you know, would you have an issue? Would this be a problem for you if you had to put your assets into a blind trust? And, you know, you know, some people expressed some some concern about it. Uh, I think more concern about the individual securities because of potential tax issues that they had to sell out of that position at the wrong time. Um, but I would not say that that was, uh, you know, a, a critical point in the recruitment where people said, no, I'm, I'm not interested because I can't have my holdings. We did not hear that. We did not uh, see that. And in terms of, you know, how uh, having an interim CIO sort of plays playing out amongst the team what what is that team dynamic like is it business as usual is it you know is there a little bit of insecurity like how's the investment team holding up yeah i i think they're doing quite well uh they're doing quite well working remotely 
uh, they uh, seem to uh, have been able to figure out all of the, you know, the processes that, you know, normally they've been doing these 350 people sitting here in Sacramento, uh, but they've been doing quite well, both on the productivity side, as well as I think really finding some opportunities uh, that are out there considering we've got uh, some pretty strong liquidity right now. Um, you know, but we hired, uh, we put Dan Bienvenu, uh, who is a 16 year veteran uh, in our investment office, certainly was someone, you know, our team knew. Uh, he was the head of our global equity team uh, prior to uh, becoming the deputy chief investment officer. Uh, when Ben was here, he hired uh, Dan to do that role. And so he was really sitting there as a natural interim candidate. And, you know, he was a part of creating the investment strategy, the 7% uh, challenge strategy, if you will, that had that three-pronged approach. He was certainly a part of creating it. And then also we hired, we had a real key hire and Sterling Gunn, uh, who came in to replace Eric Bagson. So the two of them have a very strong working relationship, along with Arnie Phillips, who came in to backfill Dan's deputy position, who is a 30-year CalPERS veteran. So we've got 16 years, 30 years, and then a brand new person who's been here you know, some months, who are really running the strategy that they were a part of creating. So it's been seamless for the team, in my view, on the strategy side. And the whole pandemic and the remote work, I think um, it, there's really not been um, a miss uh, for, for that team. I, I think, again, morale is high. Uh, people are excited about uh, prospects. Uh, Greg Ruiz came in, you know, just some months ago to head our private equity team. He's been able to really complement that team. Mayor Yup Kim out of the Alaska Permanent Fund. And uh, so things are things are going very well over there. That's awesome. And so let's talk a little bit about managing through the pandemic. And you know, it's the biggest fund in the US. You've got a huge portfolio, but you've got a huge team as well, from the CEO's chair. And you know, where where you're managing the business, what's that been like? Tell, tell us about the challenges that you've faced with the remote work, with managing team, keeping the culture intact you know there's so much in there uh, what's that been like for you marcy yeah it's uh, we, we've worked hard <laughs> to protect this culture uh, that we've spent quite a bit of our time and my time over the last four years since i arrived in 2016 and i, I think we were able to do it through uh, a, a couple of uh, ways uh, one is we increased the amount of communication that was going into the organization uh, communication meeting, you know, unfortunately for most of it, it had to be one way, but we opened up a weekly web chat of, you know, me talking to all 2,800 employees who decided, you know, to come into this, uh, you know, virtual meeting room. Um, and it, they were very well attended You know, 1,500, you know, of our employees were attending these web chats. And I think what made them different is that they could pre-submit questions and I would answer those questions directly, but, you know, really giving, you know, essential updates that would impact their job or, you know, updates that were happening around the pandemic. We also run a health program. And so we have, you know, a, a physician on, on our team. And Don Moulds is, you know, a PhD and he's, you know, the head of our health program. So it was this, this nice blend between running a retirement system, but also having this healthcare information to share with our employees at a time that a pandemic was really scaring everyone. So we, we did that, but we also allowed, uh, I took live questions from people. So I would have my phone, <laughs> my cell phone, and people could submit their questions via email. And I would just answer those questions directly. So 
to us, it was increasing the transparency. I believe it increased the, the trust in the information that we were providing. And we did that, as I said, we did that weekly at the beginning. We're now doing that on an every two week schedule. We do those on, on Thursdays. And so I think that was important. The other tone that we had from the top was that we need to be flexible with people. The, you know, our employees are trying to balance different things in their households than they've ever had to balance before. They're having to be school teachers. They're having to care for their elder parents. They're having to do you know, their job. They, they can't have their income or their salary disrupted. And so we had to find a way to communicate very clearly that we want to keep flexibility in the way that they do their work for CalPERS. Uh, we have members, we have 2 million members who are counting on us. And so we need to do the work, we need to be productive and we need to have the right outputs coming out of our team. But how they go about doing that and how they arrange their days that best suited them, we want to make sure that they understood that we would give them that flexibility to do it. And I think, you know, just that tone, the increased communication, daily emails uh, from me that would go out to everyone about, you know, and these were not long emails, these were just the points that people needed to know for the day. I think that really helped in keeping uh, employees feeling connected with one another. Uh, we started putting more information out on our intranet. We created our new DEI framework, all remotely, virtually. And so you, you do sense this really positive energy with the team. We have a number of team members who can't wait to come back into the office. And we have an equal number of team members who are saying, you know, I'm pretty productive working from home. Why do I need to come back into the office? And, you know, our contact center might be a prime example of that. And that, that flexibility is going to continue post pandemic. So, you know, we have these 2,800 positions and all of our leaders are going through and designating whether that position would be eligible for full-time, eligible for part-time, or not eligible at all uh, for remote work. And then our team will be able to decide. So for example, if they're sitting in a position that's eligible for full-time, contact center, but they really don't want to work full-time remotely, they want to have more of a hybrid schedule, a part-time schedule, we're going to allow that to happen. We will accommodate that need for that employee because we know that increases engagement when they feel like their employer is really looking out for their best interests and their, you know, their home needs as well as their work needs. And, uh, you know, just those key messages of reassurance, you know, we're going to work with you, uh, you know, getting information, health information during a pandemic that came, you know, curated, uh, if you will, from our own team, because there's so much information out there. So we had team members who were sorting and sifting through all that information about what would be most relevant uh, to our team, you know, here in California. And, you know, I think those were likely the top three things that uh, were, were effective. The challenge, you know, still remains on, uh, we used to, you know, you walk down the hallways and people are really happy when you see them. You know, they call it, we call it the CalPERS family. It's a big family. Uh, but, you know, people are really proud of saying they work at CalPERS. They call it a destination employer. We ask them, well, why, why is CalPERS a destination employer? And then they talk about, well, being able to work on teams with one another, the development and training that, uh, you know, we set aside and invest in our team for their, you know, their future career or better success on their current job. We, we very much invest in, in our team. And so how do you keep this kind of secret sauce uh, together when you have half the team or a quarter of the team working remotely? or a full, you know, a full-time team working remotely. How does CalPERS keep that family, that destination employer, that culture as strong as it was prior to the pandemic? And I think that that is going to be a challenge for us. Um, and, 
that will take some settling in time, you know, 12 to 18 months past a pandemic. I think we'll have better indicators of how that is going to work or not work. Uh, but we're trying not to make significant decisions in the short run that we would be held to in the longer uh, term, because we're going to learn as we start returning people, you know, into the into the buildings and we want again flexibility that tone at the top around flexibility it has to go both ways flexibility for us to figure this out flexibility for our employees to figure this out as well it sounds like a, a you know some of the strategies and, and processes you've put in place you know could do well to sort of be part of the norm post pandemic as well you know that increased communication and and things that perhaps you wouldn't have done if you weren't forced to but you know there have been really good results as as have come out of it. Um, let's talk about the portfolio for a moment. Um, you mentioned that you have a lot of liquidity at the moment, which is a good place to be, obviously. Um, it had a good return for the calendar year, I think 12.5%. Um, can you talk us through, you know, the last year, you know, particularly when it comes to that that liquidity, being able to stay focused on the long-term strategy, what opportunistic uh, elements kind of came into the way you viewed uh, investments last year and, and uh, you know, then sort of going into the asset liability study uh, this year, you know, what some of your assumptions about capital markets are, what your return expectations are, you know, how are you going to manage that? Liquidity, you know, it can hurt you or help you. Uh, too much liquidity is going to be a, a real problem because it's not working for you, especially at a 7% uh, return. And then, you know, if you don't have enough, either when opportunities or your benefit payroll comes up, and our benefit payroll is about $25 billion per year. So we have to manage liquidity very closely so that it doesn't hurt us and it mostly helps us and get those assumptions uh, put in place. And uh, the team really worked closely to develop this dashboard so that they could manage, you know, that that profile much better than they were managing it, frankly, during the financial crisis. Uh, but over a period of time, really understood what it, you know, would take to be able to fund these deals that were coming up. And at a time, I, I believe that, you know, other funds uh, were challenged uh, in some ways uh, with liquidity. We were able to do some. Uh, funding of uh, opportunistic strategies, uh, private debt strategies during the actual, you know, lows in the market. Um, but I think where our biggest uh, effort around asset class uh, improvement or restructuring is in our private equity program. And this was, has been done, you know, with Greg Ruiz and certainly with our, you know, interim chief investment officer. And, you know, we did a, a, a look back, just a, an attribution look back at our at our performance in the private equity uh, asset class. And it's not it's not been strong. We compare it to our peers. And frankly, if our private equity performance would have been near our you know sister fund across the river, CalSTRS, we would have hit our assumed rate of return last fiscal year. And so when you look at a 15 to 20 year review, uh, we found uh, several things. One of the things we found is that we had concentration uh, in funds, uh, buyout funds, large buyout funds, and we were not consistent in funding those vintages over time. We actually you know, would fund and then we'd stop and we would not participate in fundraising for you know, three to four years at a time that private equity likely was under some attack um, you know, in, in the media. And so people pulled away from the asset class, not understanding the long-term implications of doing that. Uh, so what Greg and team have been doing is uh, really working to repair the relationships that we have with our GPs, you know, ensuring that those communications around alignment of interests are, are 
happening privately. These are you know, private entities, but they're happening privately. We're not uh, compromising on our expectations, but we, we want to have a better alignment of interest in a, in a, in a few areas. And some of that, those are around our ESG uh, strategic plan. And I'll tell you, the GPs have been, uh, you know, they've taken these calls, they're participating in these calls, they're, they understand this uh, necessary alignment. And then uh, co-investments. Uh, we really have stopped the entire co-investment program. Uh, and so if you think about the fee load on private equity, all of the fee load was in the in these funds. And so it was a real drag on the performance. And you know, without co-investments to help mute some of the, that fund or that fee load, uh, you know, that's you know part of the reason the performance was as poor as it was. So co-investments uh, program is up and running. We've done some uh, customized investment accounts. Uh, the pillars, you know, frankly, the pillars, uh, you know, are sitting there. Uh, they haven't been, you know, canceled as a, you know, potential future opportunity. But the environment has not uh, been right uh, yet, at least as we've identified, that we would have a team who would come in and run either on the venture side, late stage venture, or on the more long hold strategy. But we have found other ways to have these long hold strategies through our customized investment accounts, which the team has delegated authority to pursue those as well. So very promising, but uh, as you know, with private equity, what we're putting in play today, we won't know the real performance outcome in for you know, five years or so, if not long. And so it's not going to be helpful at jumping into the ALM. It's not going to be that helpful as we're thinking about the 7% challenge and the private equity asset class really helping to bridge that gap in what we saw with the capital market assumptions. For example, in 2016 on our portfolio, we're roughly 6.1 to 6.2. Too. The same asset allocation on that portfolio today, that 10 year CMAs have come down under six, and I think they're roughly 5.6. So, you know, it doesn't, it leaves you basically with two decisions as we're working our board through uh, the ALN cycle, and that's all happening this year, uh, July uh, through the end of the year. A lot of work with our stakeholders so they understand they need to be engaged with us. Uh, to weigh in on these decisions that the board will be making. But we either have to increase risk in the portfolio to retain the 7% growth target, or the growth target has to come down. And those, <laughs> those are the two choices. And neither one of those are easy decision. decisions. There will be trade-offs. Uh, you know, I think it's difficult for people to think about adding cost to a system when CalPERS has already identified one of the key risks uh, to the system is the affordability of our public employers to continue to make contributions. That's a key risk. The second key risk is uh, being able to hit that 7% growth target and the markets and the forward-looking expectations. And then the third are the risks related to, you know, in particular climate and, and human capital management and the disclosure of those metrics so that we can appropriately manage that risk. Uh, but the board, uh, you know, we will work them through their risk appetite first, uh, understand where they might be based on that risk appetite. We will bring back candidate portfolios and then all of the asset class uh, assumptions, return assumptions would uh, certainly be a part of that. But we, um, we've been trying to uh, make sure that our board uh, fully understands that it, we're aware of how difficult these decisions are going to be for them. And to the level of data and information that we can make publicly available to the stakeholders so that they can weigh in at the time of decision, that, that will 
that will help the board, I think, to make these these tough these tough uh, decisions. But uh, um, you know, it'll be a tough year. It's going to be a long year on, on ALM. Yeah, it sounds like there's a, a lot of work involved and, you know, that's kind of a difficult, complex process at the best of times, isn't it, <laughs> let alone with with a, a pandemic and, you know, market volatility and without a CIO and, you know, you've got, you're have got you up against it. Um, you got it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is what you sort of foresaw as the, cha- the challenges for 2021. I guess you've outlined that certainly with the, you know, ALM and the prospect of a reduced, you know, return target as well. What about sort of on a more personal level, Marcy, in terms of, you know, how you've been managing the last kind of year or so? You mentioned you've been at in the in the top job there at CalPERS now since October 2016, which I can't believe it's gone that quickly. It might not have for you, but um, how have you found that as a, as a CEO in that time and what have been the biggest challenges for you personally? It's, you know, it's an amazing, you know, opportunity when you can align your personal values around your your career. And that's really what I've been able to do at CalPERS. But, you know, it is challenging. It is, you know, extremely challenging uh, working, you know, in the public environment that we do and getting it right, you know, making sure that our members, the 2.1 million members and everything that we do is really to ensure that they understand that their benefits are are being managed, uh, that the investment portfolio is being managed at an appropriate level of risk to get to that return, and that we've got the utility to mitigate that risk. But we're getting to that point where, you know, can we really offset and mitigate that risk, that 7% challenge risk, particularly over the next five years? Um, But I, you know, I I do enjoy the role. Uh, It can be it's a lot, uh, right? It's a very busy <laughs> job, uh, but I have a great team. I enjoy working with every member on my team. It's it's a great organization. I was talking to uh, a potential candidate the other day who is you know thinking about putting their name in, and he he just said, you know, after talking to you and talking to some of your team, he said half of what is he said I can't believe what's written in the media about you. You know these conversations and these discussions. There's, you know, I, I don't pick up on any of that. So I think that's the biggest challenge for me is how do I, you know, continue to make sure that we we tell the real story of CalPERS. You know, I always tell the team it's more important what others say about us than what we say about ourselves. And I fundamentally believe that. But how do we how do we take, you know, this fund that has an extremely important mission of protecting you know, security, financial security for over 2 million people. How do we, you know, how do we do that better? How do we do that more transparently? How do we make sure that we are continuing to have the trust by these members that we will take care of, you know, their benefit, that their benefit is here when they need it. And so that's the best part of the job. Doing it sometimes in the challenging environment we have, um, you know, can be, you know, can be, you know, it can be long days, <laughs> uh, but it's worthwhile. <laughs> it's worth it at the end when, you know, I just did a, a call yesterday with a group of uh, retirees. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's a firsthand reminder when you're talking with them how important this role is and how important the mission of the organization is. And, you know, d- addressing their concerns about, you know, is their benefit going to be there throughout their lifetime? You know, they read this. How, how should they respond? What's the board doing around employers? Uh, are employers able to make their contributions? 
And so, you know, those conversations, uh, that's probably between that, talking to my employees, that's the best part of the job. I, I really enjoy that. And I think I've told you my story about my grandparents, but they, they really didn't have, they had no retirement. They had their personal savings and they had social security. It took a couple of, you know, really unexpected events to wipe out their personal savings. And they were trying to live on social security. They were savers. They were, they had no debt. They carried no debt whatsoever, but it was very difficult to watch that they really did not have the financial options as someone who, you know, is aging and needs access to medical health care, um, you know, other, other things with, with their home. Um, just seeing, you know, the impact that that had on my grandfather, my grandmother, um, seeing them stressed about their financial ability. Uh, that was tough. And I think that's really what pushed me into this pension side or retirement side is, you know, what can we do or what can I do, you know, to ensure that, you know, people as they uh, age, they, they carry that dignity of being able to, to buy groceries, to be able to pay their bills, to be able to, you know, take their granddaughter, you know, to lunch. Um, you know, simple things. People are not making a lot of money when they retire out of CalPERS. The average benefit is just over $30,000. They're not getting wealthy off of this. And so that that's the most important part of the job and the one that I, you know, that it really keeps me getting up in the morning and thinking about how do we, how do we do better. Sounds like an amazing personal motivator and I'm sure they would be very proud of you if, uh, if they're still around. Um, Marcy, thank you so much for spending some time with me. It's so great to see you again and um, I hope it's not too much longer before we can meet in person and good luck with the next year. I look forward to staying in touch as the ALM uh, develops and you hire a CIO and, and good luck with it all. Yes, I appreciate that and we'll certainly be in touch once we get close uh, to making that selection. Awesome. Thanks, Marcy. Thank you very much for your time. Great.